This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fern Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Here again today with another episode for you. If you're listening to this podcast, I think you probably already get it or you're well on your way to getting it. And by getting it, I mean you understand the seven reasons why you, like me, should be investing in mobile home parks. In addition to that, you understand the 11 steps, or you're in the process of learning the 11 steps that are necessary for evaluating a mobile home park purchase. You understand your deal criteria. You kind of have an idea for where you want to invest, how you want to invest, what your operations are going to look like. While you don't have the experience of operations yet, you're getting ready to jump in the game, and you're getting ready to make an offer. So before you make an offer, how do you do it? What goes into your underwriting? What assumptions should you make? What kind of financial ratios or scenarios should you consider? And to each, to each of us, there may be some different deal criteria. Your investment criteria, your tax situation, your you know, work-life balance situation uh, is going to be different than mine or the next guy. But there are still going to be some key areas and some key things you need to consider that I think are relevant for all of us. And that's what we're going to cover today. Today we're going to cover underwriting and assumptions when putting together the economics, putting together an offer on a mobile home park purchase. And there's really two main areas to consider when you're doing this. The first one I think is the most important is look at the you know profit and loss. And you can look at a profit and loss or an income statement. It may be called by your accountant. And you can look at what is it showing me on a historical basis, meaning the seller's financials. But then also what is it going to look like in the future, sometimes called a pro forma P&L or a pro forma income statement. And based on that, you can kind of come up with an anticipated net operating income. And then when you get net operating income, that's typically how you will get to the valuation by later applying a market capitalization rate. And real briefly, the way that works is you, you get your NOI and you divide it by the market cap rate, and that's the price you should pay. So if the park has a $100,000 net operating income and the market's 10 cap, well, you, can, you should pay a million dollars. But if the person's asking $2 million and you derive that there's only a $100,000 net operating income, well, it's $100,000 net operating income divided by price or value of $2 million. Well, that's going to be a 5% capitalization rate. So obviously, you can tell by this simple math, the lower the cap, the higher the price. So clearly, when you sell, you want to sell it like the four, five, six. When you buy, you want to buy at 7, 8, 9, 10. But that's just in general. That's not really wisdom for you. That's common sense. So today we're going to get into the minutiae of what items should be included in your analysis. Because I heard this from a big general contractor here in Kansas City one time. He said, the biggest problems with construction budgets is not a missed price, but it is a missed price. By that missed price, he means something that was not taken into consideration. Real quick, one story. I just was working with an investor out of Florida. He owns some parks in the south. And I looked at his budget and I said, this is for a park in Illinois, northern Illinois. I said, Where, what's your snowplow budget? He goes, oh, I've never paid for snowplowing. You live in the Midwest, you live in the north, snowplowing is part of life. You know, I've got a shovel in my truck, right? 
down. I got a friend from Dallas. He's like, I've never seen snow. I think in high school once he saw like a quarter of an inch of snow and he's like, it was unbelievable. People couldn't drive. It was like, oh my gosh, the school, the city was closed down. So different experiences, different life experiences will help us to shape our budgets, our profit and loss in a different manner. So I'm going to help you walk through just kind of some general stuff and then kind of get in the weeds on some P&L items and then also on a kind of a day one budget or a CapEx budget and really a kind of a sources and uses is another term. What are the sources of capital? You know, typically equity and debt. Sometimes there's alternative sources. Not as common in mobile home park world for like things like tax incentives or tax credits. Typically you're looking at, you know, things like equity, perhaps private money or, you know, some sort of senior debt, some junior debt, maybe some bridge or mes debt. That's not that really important for today's discussion. Sources, the uses is more important in my opinion. What are you going to spend the money on? You're going to spend it on the purchase price. You're going to spend it on park-owned homes. You're going to spend it on infrastructure, CapEx. You're going to spend it on developer fees, legal fees, um, those sort of closing costs, all kinds of stuff related to that. We'll get into that as well. So I'm going to jump into the P&L. Before we get into the specific line item categories, I want to just talk macro level, what kind of expense ratio you should expect in a mobile home park. And this is going to be variable based on a number of factors, but the industry standard is right about 30% expense ratio if the tenants pay the water sewer and about 40% expense ratio if the landlord pays the water sewer. Clearly, this is an estimate. You know, it's not 10% water all the time. The water is one of the biggest expenses in any profit and loss. So that's one of the reasons why submetering the water is a great way to cut expenses, increase NOI, increase value in a mobile home park. The 30 to 40, okay, that's the general realm, but I like to get into the weeds and get bids and get specific line items to kind of sharpen my saw and refine my numbers so I can put forth the best effort and the best offer. I was working with some guys yesterday, actually, and they... They were very conservative. They had like a 50 to 60% expense ratio. Like, we want to be conservative. It's like, I'm all about not buying a bad deal and not being overly aggressive. But I said, guys, you're going to underbid this deal by a million dollars and you're going to be a low ball and you're not going to get the deal when you could have paid more if you just sharpened your saw, sharpened your numbers. So that's what we're going to try to do here today. In general, if a park is bigger, you know, 50, 100, 200 lots, there's probably some efficiencies or economies of scale. So you may be able to have, you know, one manager can handle 60 lots and one manager can handle 40 lots. So the bigger the park, you have some efficiencies there, maybe some efficiencies on maintenance, um, legal cost for eviction. Legal, you, know, maybe have, you may have more evictions, but you, you, know, you can maybe get some bulk pricing. Accounting, it's almost the same level of accounting cost to do the tax return for a partnership, which would be an LLC taxes partnership. And the issue K-1s, whether you got three investors or 30 investors, and whether the, the deal is worth a million dollars or $5 million. So some of that, from a ratio perspective, the, those professional services cost, the permit cost, some of those things get absorbed easier into a larger park. Now, there are other variable expenses that that's not really the case. I mean, property taxes are probably, you know, if you got a park worth $10 million, it's probably going to be taxed higher than a park worth $1 million. And the same thing with the, even plowing the snow and mowing the grass. You've probably got more streets to push the snow on on a larger park. You probably have more office supplies, things like that, because you're printing more invoices and notices and all that kind of stuff. So it's important to look at those and, and kind of see what makes the general percentages, uh, you know, right or wrong in your situation. So part of the profit and loss, the basic formula is 
Income minus expenses equals net operating income. So how do you get income? Well, it's revenue. The first revenue is really your potential gross income, your potential gross lot rent. And that's simply number of lots times lot rent per month times 12 months. That's your potential gross rent. You do the same thing for potential home rent. Number of home rentals times amount of home rental rent times 12 months. You have to subtract from your potential rent any vacancy and any uncollectible or bad debt. And that gives you your effective net rent or your effective uh, net income. And you could look at the vacancy in a number of ways. You can look at it based on you know, current vacancy, market vacancy, some level of turnover. It, that can be subjective. It's going to depend on a park-by-park -park basis also. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that if you have park-owned homes, you're going to have more turnover and more vacancy, just like an apartment, than you would if you have all tenant-owned homes. I mean, the stats will show that. I mean, renters generally stay eight months to two years. Land or, excuse me, homeowners that rent your land... They stay typically. I think this. I think the stats are like eight to eight to ten years a pop. And I've got some that have been there for fifty years. So that's I mean, that's part of the benefit of this industry, right? Is it's sticky tenants, and you get stickier tenants when you have tenant-owned homes as opposed to park-owned homes. So that's kind of the the metrics that go into effective net rent. Everybody everybody gets that. I think that's not that complex. What what people make big misses on a lot of times, I think, are operating expenses. I looked at a deal a deal yesterday where there were like five different expense categories like tax maintenance miscellaneous and insurance like okay those are all good but here are some expenses that i would at a minimum include these advertising now advertising expense i don't really do a lot anymore i used to do facebook boosting but now facebook marketplace is pretty much good enough i may do an initial ad once you know that i pay for or maybe um i'll buy i'll categorize this as advertising but i'll buy you know some of those like flag signs that say for sale for rent that you put out by your street and I call that an annual expense as opposed to a one-time expense because those flags get torn up in the wind. So you pretty much have to buy new flags every year. Um, and I don't count my signage, by the way. We'll get into that on my on the day one budget. Um, the next is insurance. You typically are going to need liability insurance at a minimum for the park operations. If you have park-owned homes or any other structures, you're going to need casualty insurance. Sometimes you need life insurance. Like I've got some deals where my my lender requires me to have life insurance with them as the beneficiary. So if I get hit by a bus, at least there's money to pay off the loan. So it's good to get life insurance, and you can get cheap, cheap 10 or 20-year term life insurance. The younger you are, the cheaper it is typically. So even when I pay off this loan, I'm going to keep that life insurance policy in place because I've already, I already qualified it. I was like, I don't know, 32 or something when I qualified for it. So it was cheaper than, than what it would be today. And what I'll do is I'll just reassign the beneficiary to my spouse or to the next lender. So that's the benefit of life insurance. And the deal can pay for that. The deal pays for, the deal pays for that. If my investors own a piece of that deal, they pay for a portion of that premium. It's pretty cheap. It's like $42 a month. Okay, next, operating expenses, legal. This is typically legal for evictions. Sometimes you have legal for other issues. I mean, sometimes if the city comes in, they're trying to do condemnation or you're getting a code violation. But I don't, have, I don't, you know, I'm my own lawyer, right? So I don't typically have to pay for legal. I use my legal brain, I guess, you know, on a regular basis, probably daily in operations. But if you're not a lawyer and you need one, you may need a budget more legal than me. You know, I usually budget, you know, evictions should cost anywhere from, you know, 500 to $1,500 a pop, depending on the unique case. You could probably budget. It depends on the size of the park. Like I'm, look, I'm looking at a performer in front of me right now, and it's, it's a 54-lot park. And I'm, I budgeted two to three evictions a year. So I budgeted 1500 I found a local lawyer 
to do it for 400 bucks pop plus court fees. Uh, accounting fees. This is going to depend on number of investors. You know, you're probably talking two to four thousand dollars to file the partnership return and issue K1s. That's going to be if you're doing your own books and something like Rent Manager, Appfolio, or Buildium, a professional uh, bookkeeping software, and then you send the accountant your your financial statements. If you have to hire an accountant or accounting firm to actually do your books, then that's going to be more expensive. I do have in house. I have a secretary that does this and bookkeeper. And then I just ship them off to a tax uh, CPA firm and they do the tax returns. Uh, the next expense is licenses and permits. These vary a lot. Sometimes it's zero. Most times it's like 50 bucks. I've got one park. The one I'm looking at right now, it's $25 per lot. So that's, that's pretty steep, I think. This is a 54 lot park, so it's $1,350 per year. And then the, in addition to the city permits, sometimes you have state permits or state EPA permits. You really need to get into that and look at that and make sure you don't miss anything. Uh, we cover all those permits and stuff in a different pod- podcast. The next is your park greeter. Sometimes you have a manager. Sometimes you have a greeter. This park here is small enough with only 54 lots. I've got a park greeter. His compensation is free lot rent, and he gets $15 an hour for he does if he does labor on like renovating houses and stuff like that. But just the lot rent is pretty, you know, pretty basic fee. Industry standard in the last several years has been kind of free lot rent plus $10 per lot per month. So on this park, 54 lots would be 540 a month plus free lot rent of 395. He probably makes more than that because I give him bonuses. He sold 25 houses this year. So, you know, we give him a bonus for all those houses. We bought him a trailer for his truck and put in a driveway for him and stuff because this guy uh, here has been just crushing it. You know, we've added over a million dollars of value in like nine months of ownership because of this park greeter. So I'm not going to be chintzy with him. And I'm going to make sure we take care of him. So we gave him the other day. He's like, hey, here's a thousand bucks, you know. But I didn't budget that because I didn't budget this level of production. Um, but I'm going to want to take care of him. And next is annual road repair. This is going to be variable in large part based on the condition of roads. If you buy a park that right out the gate in your budget, you do major capex and repave the roads. Well, you're going to have less annual road repair, at least in the first several years. But you're going to have road repair, fixing potholes, at least doing cold patch something like that uh, on a regular basis if you've got asphalt roads. It's not that expensive. I mean, this park I've got budgeted 1500 a year, so not a lot. Um, but the roads are in good shape. If you've got city streets, man, you could budget zero. If you've got concrete streets, man, those things last forever. I bought a park in, in Illinois, and this, the concrete roads are like 15 years old, and they look like they're six months old. I mean, concrete's the best. I, I've never put in concrete for roads because it's super expensive. I put in concrete for like driveways and stuff or sidewalks, but to, to repave a park and concrete roads cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, next up, trash. I have to say in parentheses, unreimbursed trash. A lot of states, you're required to provide trash and not pass it through the tenants or not let the tenants do it on their own. I don't recommend letting tenants do it on their own because what if they don't? Now you've got a huge nightmare. So I typically budget for just regular weekly trash service. I think the polycart trash service is way better than bringing in the big dumpsters because you bring the big dumpsters and they come in once a week. Those trucks weigh a ton, probably more than a ton, and they beat the hell out of your roads. So it's not worth it. Uh, we do bring in the occasional roll-off dumpster, but those are not as heavy-duty and not as regular. And we, those are more like a day one, or we bring them in with the renovation. It's not a, a typical operating expense. Maybe you bring one or two in for your you know spring cleanup day, that kind of thing. But you got you can't you got to have the trash in there. And then I put in park maintenance and repair. This is anywhere from fifty dollars a lot to like two hundred dollars a lot, and it's going to depend on the park. But I typically do lower on this, like fifty dollars a lot, because I break out more expenses some brokers 
will just say, oh, it's $150 a lot. Like, what does that include? It's just ma- repair and maintenance. Okay, great. You got that out of some book. Okay, but in real life, I've already got things like, I've already set out road repair. I've already set out snow removal. I've set out tree removal. I've set out mowing some of these items as uh, a la carte line items. So I can put a, I put in a bucket category of less and then I also throw in, I'll jump to this bottom, I, just, I throw in a miscellaneous. In this park, I put in 5000 That's pretty generous for what I'm doing here. But it depends on the park. You could put in 25000 your miscellaneous. But it's important to have park just a general park maintenance repair category. I mentioned snow removal, tree removal. Obviously, this can depend on the geographic location and then the, the physical location. If you have no trees, you have no tree removal. If you got a ton of trees, you got a budget for that. You can, get, you can get bids for that too during your due diligence, and that'll help you. And you definitely want to get at least three bids for both those items. I have in here gas for site visits, and this is one where my dad lives about four hours away, so I've got in here one site visit per month for manager. And it's 12 months times two for a round trip times 57.5 cents, that's the uh, IRS rate, times 209. He's 209 miles away. And I'm billing that to the partnership. And this deal, dad and I are the only two partners. There's no investors in this deal. But... It wouldn't be fair for him to just pay for his own mileage and wear and tear in his vehicle when he's benefiting the both of us. So he gets reimbursed for his trips, and that's a real business expense on this project. And obviously, he's paying himself with his own money um, for a portion of this, but I'm paying. I'm covering my share too. Okay, next is property taxes. I've got a whole other podcast on how to project the property taxes and how to appeal the property taxes. So check that out. But don't just take the number that the seller gave you. I've got electric for an office, a shed, or a storm shelter. This park doesn't have any. This is something you want to look at the prior guy's bills and see what his electric bill is. This park is zero because there are no there are no ancillary buildings. It's a really dense 54-unit park. Next is mowing. I've gotten this one only 250 a month, $250 a year because I've got almost no common area and all the lots are full with houses. And sometimes the mowing's included in the park greeter's fee as well, so it's kind of already baked in. Next is office supplies miscellaneous. This is like paper. We have our own check printer that our bookkeeper uses. Like we have, it's got this Micker ink that's really expensive. So we have Micker ink, special printer, special stock paper, all your regular office supplies. Um, I put like computers or scanner printers for like the manager if I pay for those, which I do sometimes. That'll be like a day one cost, like part of like CapEx essentially, as opposed to an annual expense. Internet phone. I've got in here 75 bucks a month, and that's just to add another account to our rent manager account. Rent manager, you can add another user for like $75 a month, so it's 900 a year. Security cameras, this park does not have them. Personal property taxes. In this park, we have no park-owned homes that we're paying personal property taxes on. And Illinois doesn't really have personal property taxes in Illinois. Missouri, they do have it. So you got to check your state, check your region, and then plug that number in. Electric for street lights. This is oftentimes a fixed number. Instead of like at my house, the electric is based on my usage. They don't come out and read the meters on the street lights a lot of times. It's just per pole. So in this park, I've got budgeted $86.40 a month because that's what the bill is based on the number of light poles. And actually recently we added some light poles. It's, it's often advantageous to add light poles and to convert them to LED just to make the park brighter, safer, happier. And people will notice that um, you're watching them and notice that you're putting money in there. I think it's called the Hawthorne effect. If I remember from grad school, where there was a, a case study, interesting sidebar, but it's my podcast, so I guess I'll, I'll go for it, right? And this case study was a factory, and they, let's say the level, of, on a 1 to 10, the level of lighting was a 7. Well, they wanted to test to see if the productivity increased with a brighter atmosphere. So they increased the light to an 8, and productivity increased. Then a 9, then a 10, and it kept increasing. So they, they came up with the theory originally that, 
people will work harder, better, faster in a brighter lit environment. But then they, the beauty of the study was they then dropped the lights down to at nine, to eight, to seven, to six, to five, and they continued to increase productivity. Made no sense. So clearly, the level of light was not the reason for productivity. The reason for productivity was there was a change. And the workers indirectly, maybe even subconsciously, recognized they were being watched. And maybe not just in a watch like, oh, Big Brother's watching, but like somebody's paying attention and my work matters. So I would never in a mobile home park decrease the light. So I'm not going to really do the Hawthorne effect, but I definitely will increase the light. Add light pools. And I'm going to talk to your utility company to do that. And there, there's some strategies I can, I probably won't cover another podcast on it, but maybe shoot me an email. I'll give you some strategies on how to do that as well. Um, next is water. This is a big expense. As I mentioned, it could be 10% of your expenses, of your entire revenue load. So huge portion of your expenses. In this park, I have unreimbursed, I put in parentheses, water unreimbursed. We had this park sub-metered. So when sub-metered, you know, that you pass the water and sewer billing onto the tenants. You got to make sure that you're allowed to do that, obviously, legally and all that, and you do it right. But so you're going to have some leakage. Typically, you have some leakage of stuff that's coming through the common meters that's not going through the individual home sub, home sub meters, and or you may have like you know a sprinkler system or something. I have in this one some. I budgeted some money for what I call the eat. I had to eat some water at the beginning because I had to implement my new leases, my new sub meters, find some leaks, patch the leaks. So I have some unreimbursed. Some of that was CapEx, like, you know, excavation and submetering. But as far as unreimbursed water, I'm going to have some amount. I hear, you know, I hear people say, if you get, you know, 90% collection, you're doing amazing. Frankly, I don't think that's amazing. I try to get better than on every park, and we, and we seem to get there. I mean, we have to spend five or $10,000 digging up the earth and changing some some fittings and stuff, but... Water is just so painful. Now you got to always do a cost-benefit analysis, like everything. I'm not going to spend a hundred thousand dollars to fix a water problem that's going to cost me a thousand dollars a year. Somewhere out there, I'm sure there's a tree hugger that's offended by that that I'm wasting water. But uh, sorry, not sorry. It's my money, natural money. Okay, the next operating expense we're going to talk about is going to be management fee. And it was dad and me owning the park. We're not going to have a management fee, but industry standard is going to be at least five percent. So you might as well put five percent in your budget. Um, maybe you pay it yourself. Maybe you pay it to your third-party management company. Like I own a third-party management company where some of my employees work out of, and that's that's an LLC that's taxed as an S corp for, for certain tax reasons, and that's the LLC that pays the laborers, that issues 1099s, it has workers' comp insurance, all that kind of stuff. But when you get into loan, the appraiser or the lender, they're going to impute some sort of management fee, generally five to eight percent. So you might as well include it in your budget. Uh, so basically. Those are the typical operating expenses for a mobile home park. And you've got if you've got park-owned homes, you've got some operating expenses for, for mobile homes and park-owned homes. But that's going to be very dependent on the quality condition of the home, your turnover, your market. So I'm not really budgeting that in this P&L. So that's pretty much it from a P&L perspective. Now we'll jump into quickly here the day one budget. And the day one budget, this is really going to be most beneficial to complete you can do it originally, but you really just need to do a site visit or have a good feel of, you know, from photos or videos of the park to figure out what you need to put in there into the deal. So for use of funds, I referenced it earlier. Here's the key items for use of funds. Roll off dumpsters. How many homes are you going to throw away? How much junk you have laying around? 
I'm going to bring these in right out of the gate so the tenants can then begin to play by your rules. We have a no play, no stay policy, and we, we require your yards to be cleaned up. You can't have weight benches and 17 bicycles and, you know, three lawnmowers and that kind of stuff. So the dumpster is going to help people get rid of that stuff. Second is home or trash removal. You know, I'll look during due diligence. Like, how many, I need to throw away five houses. I'm going to have good bids. I mean, typically it costs you know, from two to $4,000 to get rid of a mobile home and throw it away. And it can either be thrown away on site in a dumpster or it can be hauled away to the dump. Uh, marketing is next to day one expense. I've got zero on this part, but sometimes I'll have marketing that's less of, the, of today. I will typically put in new signage and billboard. And then I'll put in things like general decor, um, picket fences, rose bushes, things like that. I'll put in uh, road repairs in my, in my day one budget. And, and sometimes seal coat. And this is something you want to get a bid for. And you get at least three bids. And they'll tell you how you're supposed to do it. And you can really figure, you could easily spend $10,000, $200,000 on road work in the first, I say day one, but really all these are in the first turnaround period, the first six months, you know, so maybe the first three months. I get bids for that. I put in title work. Title work is, you know, it's generally fifteen hundred bucks to three thousand dollars, depending on the endorsements, depending on the size of your loan. Part of that is going to be, you know, if you get endorsements and you have an owner's policy or a lender's policy to pay for, that's going to go up. But you got to budget title work, and you, depending on that, you'll get used to it. And how to, you'll know how to do it based on the size of your deal. Look at it. Just look at your prior closing statements, and you can get a good idea. I budget for painting existing homes and sheds. We typically paint all the homes, including the tenant-owned homes. And we try to do that through a painting program where we say, hey, we'll paint your house for 200 bucks. You can even pay 50 bucks a month or four months. We have to. But that way, they got some skin in the game and they pay 200 bucks. Cost us about 500 all in labor and paint. And it just makes a world of difference. I'm looking at this budget for Rantoul. We've added about nine months and we've painted probably 30 houses. And we have, you know, 15 or 20 left. And it's just, you know, these are all 1970, 75, 80 houses. So they needed some love. They paint, and then we also paint or seal coat the roofs. There's a special kind of paint you can use for that as well. That's um, you know, typically white, you know, reflects the heat away and all that kind of stuff. But we, we have painting programs. So we budget that. Uh, I have in the budget water or sewer inspections or repairs. This is, you know, depending on your water lines you, and based on the due diligence of the seller records, you may have to budget some money for those repairs places like American League Detection, um, to come and look for and fix leaks. I budget travel. Like for me, I live in Kansas City. This park's like seven hours away. So if I'm going to go look at it, which I'm going to do during my due diligence period, uh, there's an expense to that. Uh, I've got, and I, re I get reimbursed if we close, basically. In day one cost, I get reimbursed for my travel. Uh, I get, a bit, get bids for the trimming the trees. This is going to need to be an on-site bid with numerous tree bidders the range I've, i mean i did a park a couple years ago i think i paid thirty thousand dollars i had bids from like 30 to 50 to eighty thousand, and I, I personally walked around with all three tree guys so it was the exact same scope of work just crazy so you got to get lots of bids next you got to pay for any inspections if you have a depending on the lender you may have to pay for a property condition assessment you have to generally have to pay for a phase one environmental sometimes a survey or a supplement to the seller survey so you got a budget for those. Typically, those are about three thousand a piece. The survey could get as high as fifteen thousand, depending on what you include on your table A. And next is the appraisal. Appraisal is typically thirty five hundred, four thousand bucks. Um, and then if you're going to submeter the water, you need to budget how much the water meter is going to cost you. 
and that whole process. And I'll go over that at a, at a later date. Uh, but I mean, I typically buy the meters for like from Metron for like 180 bucks, and I pay my own crew to put them together, install them, and it ends up being like 300 a house, which is a lot cheaper than if you have Metron install them. But Metron, if you install theirs, they have the kind with the little cell phone in them, like a Verizon chip and radio, so to speak. And those are better in the sense that you can read them remotely 24-7, but they're a lot more expensive to install and a lot more expensive to operate. I mean, for me to operate mine, I have to pay somebody. My Actually, my partner reader does it for free. You don't have to pay somebody $15 an hour to walk around for two hours and read the meters. You just got to make sure they're doing it right. I keep control of the spreadsheet internally that we put together for doing water billings once a month. But you got to budget for your, your sub-metering. Budget for any day one evictions or legal issues. Sometimes you know you got to evict people right out of the gate. It's not an operating expense, but it's like I got five right out of the gate, and then I got to do one or two a year. And then same thing with accounting or legal entity setup. You may have extra accounting you need advice for or extra entity preparation, especially if you have something like a private place memorandum. That's going to cost a lot more than just a regular operating agreement. A lot more complicated. Next up, I put in the EAT for water pre-metering. I think I mentioned earlier in my operating expense that I had water EAT, but that was that's really more the regular leakage or uncollectible water. But I also, if I transition from landlord paid water to tenant paid water, there's going to be several months there where you have to eat the entire water bill. So you can look at the prior water bills and budget your timeline. And some of these are statutory requirements before you can put get on the new lease, all that kind of stuff. Next, if you've got any park-owned home repairs, you can budget and renovate the park-owned homes. I mentioned picket fences. And then I have a miscellaneous contingency that's going to be obviously dependent on the park. And then I got on this one, I've got a developer fee. That's in my bud. This is in my template. I didn't charge a developer fee on this one because it was just dad and me. But if you're raising capital or you have private place memorandum, you're going to likely charge an acquisition fee or developer fee. And that maybe there's a seller broker deal and you're, you're splitting the commission, but typically your investors and your team is paying that fee to you. So that's kind of the, the high and low of my use of funds. We talked about sorts of funds, use of funds. They, they need to match up, right? Or you have a gap. If I have a million dollar source of funds, but I got a million five need or use of funds, I got a problem, right? So all together, hopefully will help you properly underwrite deals by making sure you don't have any missed prices in your operating expenses and any missed prices on your day one budget so you know how much money you need to do to how much money you need to raise in order to complete or do and implement your plan. If you uh, would like this list, I mean, you, hopefully you took some notes, right? But if you didn't, if you want to go get it, you can get a copy of this checklist from me. Just go to mobilehomelawyer.com and uh, somebody on my team will make sure you get, get a copy. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.